0: Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know that we're recording and releasing this episode of the Politics Guys a day early on Saturday instead of Sunday. The reason why is that I'll be at Northern Kentucky University's commencement ceremonies all day on Sunday, which I can't really skip since as the NKU Faculty Senate President, I'm also Grand Marshal at commencement. It makes for a long day, but seeing all those students walk across the stage and receive their diplomas is pretty great. Plus, I've got just about the best view in the House, since I'm the guy who hands the diploma to the President, who then gives them to the students. And so, here we are, a day early. And now, on to the show. Our top story today is the House of Representatives passing the American Health Care Act by a razor-thin 217 to 213 margin. Now, the vote, which was pushed through before the Congressional Budget Office could evaluate the effects of the legislation, will now head to the Senate, where it seems almost certain that there are going to be significant changes But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has indicated he's committed to getting an Obamacare replacement repeal bill through his chamber. So we're likely to see something, though it could take up to a few months. Now, at that point, what's almost certain to be a far less radical Senate bill will have to be reconciled with the House bill in a joint House-Senate Conference Committee with the compromise language having to be approved by majorities in both the House and the Senate before heading to President Trump's desk. In other words, that Rose Garden celebration ceremony President Trump held with the House Republican leadership this week, that might prove to be just about as premature as President Bush's famous mission accomplished speech. Uh, would you agree, Jay?
1: Well, I'd say, look, uh, sometimes you, you celebrate the first touchdown, uh, even though maybe you haven't won the game yet. Yeah. Um uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, think it was, it was, you know, perhaps premature, but, but again, keep in mind that the, 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 what we were, they were looking at was, uh, the idea of there being, uh, a, uh, health repeal and replace bill versus none whatsoever. Uh, had the house not been able to do that, I, I think it would have been a, a, a big problem for, uh, for, for Trump and for a lot of Republicans who campaigned, campaigned on this. So I, I, I get the exuberance. Um. I should also mention, although although you and I don't, don't really always keep score, uh, I believe I made a prediction a couple weeks, couple months back, that uh, the House would actually uh, pass something. That sounds vaguely familiar. Am I correct? I, I, that does sound okay. familiar. I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, not that not that we keep score, but you know, it's score uh, one for Jake. Okay. get it done, and I, I, actually, I'm I'm willing to put down a marker now that the Senate will uh, will get uh, legislation passed. Also.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I agree with you there, though I would be stunned if the Senate legislation uh wasn't very different
1: from what we saw from the House. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, there there, there are gonna be, be changes, I think. So you know But why why don't we uh you wanna tell the people what's what's in the bill.
0: Well, you know, I, I think before we even get to that, I, I wanna kinda go pull way back just for a minute. To give people a sense of uh, what health insurance even looks like in the United States. This won't be too long, yeah. but I think it's really important to bring in this context. Because basically, there are five places people get health insurance in the United States. Uh, by far, the leading place is through their employers. That's around half or so, it's 49% the last figures uh, I saw. Then there's Medicaid at around 20%. Medicare at around, I'm sorry, Medicare at around 14%. Medicare. Yeah, Medicare at around 14%. The individual market at around 7%. Uh, There are some various other smaller public insurance programs around 2%, and then the uninsured, and that's around 9%. So now- this is a pretty screwy system by the standards of the rest of the developed world, other rich countries. No one really does it in quite this weird way we do it. There are a lot of reasons behind that that we won't get into, but it's very different, certainly. Now, before we get into the American Health Care uh, Act, we need to understand a little bit about what Obamacare was designed to do. And really, Obamacare only focused on two parts of those five places people get their health insurance, and that's that's um, sorry, Medicaid and the individual market. So the vast majority really wasn't affected a ton by Obamacare, right? And so Obamacare worked to expand Medicaid. In fact, around 14 million more people in the 31 states that opted into expansion did end up signing up on Medicaid. And it also
1: required, yeah, and, and actually, the, the vast, yeah, the vast majority of people who gained insurance under uh, Obamacare uh, came through the Medicaid yeah. expansion rather than through the the individual uh, exchange markets. Yeah, and that's that's a very
0: important point. Uh, you know, it also required uninsured people to buy insurance, the famous individual mandate, but it gave them income based subsidies to do so. In addition, it required that insurers use what's called community rating, meaning that insurers can't charge people more based on their health status. It didn't allow insurers to decline coverage to people due to pre-existing conditions, and it also required that insurer that all plans cover what are called essential health benefits, things like prenatal treatment, mental health, lab work, and various other things. And as a result, millions more people were covered but there are some concerns about the long-term viability of obamacare especially among conservatives would you say that's a that's a fair sort of
1: summary of what obamacare yeah, tried I, to I th- do i think so i think that's a fair summary i i would only add to that by saying a lot of the things that were in obamacare when we talk about things like community rating and guaranteed issue um which are which are sort of important concepts to get uh, uh, for for how uh, you know insurance markets work, and, and we can talk about that later. A lot of that was already provided for uh, by by pre existing federal rules or or state uh, laws governing insurance companies. Um, so a- as you say, you know again, a lot of the the folks who got their insurance through uh, their employer uh, did not see a tre- tremendous change uh, with Obamacare. Um, one one. Th- thing that they they did see, though, was was rising premiums across the board um, that I I think were related uh, to some of the things that that Obamacare did. But... Well, we can, we can get on to that later. So.
0: Okay. Now, before we get to that, we uh, want to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Pro Flowers. Uh, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. I mean, May 14th is going to be here before you know it. And a great way to show your appreciation for all mom has done is with a beautiful bouquet from Pro Flowers. Uh, and I got a bouquet from Pro Flowers just a few days ago, in fact, and it made my morning. Um, nobody's mom, but it was a nice thing to get. Um, I took a picture, well, <laughs> actually, my wife did because she's a much better photographer than I am and I'm gonna post it to the Facebook page and the Twitter feed so you can see how great they look. Now, Jay, you got some flowers too, didn't you?
1: I did. I I, I did and I, I like seamlessly uh pretended that uh, I had ordered those for my wife all along. Oh slick. Um and uh that I got them for just just because. Uh so no, they're they lovely and, and uh uh the arrives in a in a vase uh, with a, a flower uh Food, uh, plant food that you you add to it, and uh, it's they, they arrive sort of just in just pre-bloomed condition, and so you you enjoy them for the the entire length of uh, of their lifespan. I- yeah. Yes, bloomage. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, they, they they are really nice. And when you send the 100 blooms for mom bouquet from Pro Flowers this Mother's Day, you'll make a real impression because it comes with that free glass vase that Jay mentioned for just 19.99 plus shipping and handling. And if you really want to make a statement, you can upgrade to a premium vase and include gourmet chocolates for just $10 more. Choose the delivery date you want, and ProFlowers are guaranteed to arrive fresh and beautiful and stay that way for at least seven days or your money back. Now, the only way to get 100 Blooms for Mom with a free glass vase starting at $19.99 is to visit ProFlowers.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and use our code TPG. That's ProFlowers.com and code TPG when you click on the mic. This stunning bouquet sells out fast, so order today. Okay, back to uh, the American Health Care Act. So here's my impression of what the American Health Care Act does. And you can correct me, jump in, correct me where you think I'm getting it wrong. But number one, it slowly unwinds the Obamacare-Medicaid expansion. Secondly, it un- it, yeah. it, it undoes the insurance mandate, but it still has sort of a mechanism to get people to by coverage, by penalizing people who have gaps in coverage, because the legislation allows insurers to charge them more, a first-year 30% surcharge. Now, it keeps subsidies, but these subsidies are lower than under Obamacare, and they're, bizarrely as far as I'm concerned, linked not to income, but to age. Uh, Now, it keeps the pre-existing conditions prohibition, but it Essentially eviscerates it by allowing states to opt out of it with waivers, which allows people with gaps in coverage to be charged based on health status and not by community rating. Now, the tricky thing here is this in turn is likely to make the community rating rate higher because the healthiest people in waiver states will want to be charged based on their health status because it's going to be lower than the community rating. So they'll drop out, making the community rating group sicker and sicker with the premiums going up higher and higher as a result. So there's that. And then it does, though, require waiver states to set up high-risk pools for the sickest people who can't afford insurance, though healthcare analysts say that the legislation doesn't come close to funding the cost of these pools. Now, my take on all this is this is a rushed, cobbled-together mess of a bill that's going to make millions more people Uninsured or underinsured. Now it will lower premiums in the long run. I have no doubt, but only by forcing millions of people out of the market entirely. So that's my take. Jay, what what do you think?
1: So yeah, I agree with you on uh, look. That's that's what's in the bill. Uh, I would disagree maybe with your analysis about what's going to happen. And and I think we got to take a look and remember the this is affecting really a minority of the people who. Uh, receive uh, health care through either through the the individual um, um, marketplace uh, or uh, who were were added to the roles through the Medicaid expansion um, but what it does it's importance is it stops uh, the the in- increases that were being seen in premiums for everyone else uh, that that was really you know something that's that's troubling and and affects the entire system um, was when these, you know, you would have have mandates of additional coverages, uh, less flexibility, um, and you know, we'll talk about the guaranteed issue stuff in just a second. Uh, but but what what that did was it was causing uh, rises of uh, price across the board, and eventually it would become unsustainable. Uh, this, I think, and you know, a lot of Republicans object to it because it still keeps the the sort of fundamental architecture of Obamacare. Um, But, you know, it it is it is a a more sustainable piece. The other the other big piece of this is the changes to Medicaid in that uh, states will now have a lot more flexibility as to how to run their own Medicaid systems, which uh, could and likely will result in some significant cost savings. Uh, This also repeals a lot of taxes that went along with the Obamacare uh, plan to fund it for example, uh, uh, taxes on uh, various health plans, uh, the Cadillac uh, tax, so to speak, um, that were used to to uh, to raise the money for this that now is, isn't necessarily needed. So, you know, I, I think the, you know, maybe the I, I guess where I'd like to start is is let's get a picture of how uh, healthcare and care insurance works because it's different than, than other types of insurance. And, and that goes to the idea of, 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 uh, what's called community rating and and guaranteed issue. Um, before we
0: get into that, Jay, though, I I wanted to take issue with a couple of points you made Uh, number one, I mean, you're right, of course, that, the the, that the, the HCA only affects the minority of the market, but we're talking about tens of millions of people. So this is not a this is not an insubstantial number of people. There are going to be people who millions and millions of people who are going to lose coverage if this bill were to become law and that's a very that's a very significant thing even though numerically they may be a minority. Second, I also want to point out that while a number of conservatives have argued that Obamacare was in a death spiral, there are plenty of health economists who say that wasn't the case at all. And while there were some first, second, and third year adjustments that insurers had to make because they made some miscalculations about who would sign up and who wouldn't, these things could have been easily taken care of with tweaks to the program. And in fact, that even absent tweaks, that uh, that the premium levels were, were leveling out and so forth, and it wasn't the disaster the, the spiraling down the drain thing that a lot of conservatives made it out to be. So these are-, these are uh, well, the, you know, the, the adjustments were much,
1: we'll keep increasing premiums. Well, but that. no, that's my point is
0: that, is uh, it, that was, it looked like, no, it looked like that that was going to Level out. There were a number of health economists who felt that that would be that would definitely be the case, and but that wasn't you know given a chance to happen because a number of the irresponsible things that the Trump administration did essentially caused health insurers to become a lot more uh, a lot more skeptical, a lot more squeamish, skittish, understandably so. So I'm just saying that you're you. I'm not saying that certainly a lot of people don't agree with your take on it, but it is a disputed, uh, it is a disputed take. And there are a number of experts who would say that that just wasn't the case at
1: all. Yeah, fair. Fair fair enough. But I I mean, I also point out there are a whole lot of health economists who predicted at the time that this would not increase premiums. And in fact, it was dubbed the affordable care act because it was supposed to decrease premiums and make healthcare more affordable across the board. Sure. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, there, there's been so much I've seen on, on uh, social media and and from the well from the uh, the House floor um, making these claims about uh, pre-existing conditions and people with pre-existing conditions being thrown off of the rolls and so forth. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that because you mentioned that you know people would lose insurance, and that's that is uh, true uh, to the extent people who were in the individual market and now are no longer required uh, to. To, to buy policies, um, you know. There's, I think that number was estimated to be at. Uh, I, I want to say 12 million. Don't quote me on that. Um, but it, it may be people who who weren't in the market because they didn't want to be in the market. Uh, there were also a, a, a large number of folks who, even when given the the opportunity in Medicaid expansion states, uh, had the opportunity to sign up for Medicaid, uh, but just chose not to. Now, I'm not saying they they chose not to just because they they didn't want it or that's anti-government or they thought they could get better deal somewhere else. Um, but I, I'm just saying that more to impress the there's, it's not simply that people are trying to get this coverage and then are being thrown off by the, the big mean insurance companies. Uh, these are people who didn't have coverage before because they didn't want to have, have coverage or, or for whatever reason. Some. Um, and, and, and now they are, uh, um, you know, it's what I, what I'm saying is it, people, People who have insurance now, they are not going to be thrown off of of uh, of their policies or canceled because of pre-existing conditions, uh, as as the left has been has been trumpeting.
0: Well, yeah, you know, and I think certainly there has been some exaggeration. Of this, I, I I agree with you on that. But if you, if you take a look at the the setup of at least the House plan, and again, I think the final legislation is going to be very different. There's when the CBO did its analysis of the previous bill, which is fairly similar, the one they never voted on. You know, it, right. they they concluded right. there'd be millions of people who would be left uninsured who are currently uninsured. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is all solid, reputable, independent analysis say that President Trump is lying when he says that nobody will lose coverage, there will be millions of people who won't have coverage. In part, you know, you talked about that Medicaid, that that um, Medicaid. Part of it, and you're right that states are going to get more flexibility, but also they're going to get a ton less funding. There are huge cuts to the Medicaid portion of it, and states aren't going to be able to make up those gaps, and people are going to lose coverage. And so this is this is a, a, a really really awful thing for millions of Americans, and I'm, I'm you know I'm not going to make light of that. And I'm mean, you're not either. I'm just well, saying, you know.
1: Well, no, no, I mean, I keep keeping my. Also, though with the Medicaid expansion, even those Medicaid expansion states, uh, uh, there was you know the way it started out was uh, initially there would be pots of additional federal money coming to those states. Uh, that money was going to decrease over time under Obamacare, and the states would would be responsible for for making up the difference. Uh, so again, to to me that that's one of those things of of, of look, we're we're going to be in that position regardless. Um, but uh, but again going back to uh, just just how uh, healthcare works because i think that this is this is important the idea is that you know with with life insurance or auto insurance it is experience rated uh meaning they take uh, the company takes a look at you and underwrites you based on uh your specific risks how good of a driver are you how many tickets have you had uh they look at your demographics uh, your age uh they can look at your health status uh, lifestyle, all these things, and and come up w- with a number that says this adequately reflects uh, our risk to pay on on the policy that we're selling you. Um, you know, health insurance is different because it it has this this community rating system, uh, which essentially says, as as you pointed out, uh, you're not going to be charged extra because of your health condition, age so forth there are there are lifestyle factors that can be factored in uh there are some other just general economic factors uh you know that go to you know where you live what's the you know cost of living uh and so forth um but but they they can't charge insured a more than uh insured b uh because the one person has has a, a pre-existing condition and, and again that's been the law in most places for decades now and, and that's how we've operated because that's that's sort of the right way to do it. Uh, you're not uh, discriminating against those who sort of you know draw the the short genetic straw. Uh, and end up with with you know I, getting some sort of
0: I I disagree with you of, on you know. that. I, I believe that that's not the case in fact, and that's why the Obamacare pre-existing condition thing was uh was was pretty important in the individual market uh, people could be denied based on pre-existing conditions. Now in the employer-based market that that typically isn't a thing and you just sign up as part of your group, but that was one of the great well, uh, great things that Obamacare did.
1: Well, the other the other piece of that was though continuous coverage uh in, in that if you were if you were continuously covered uh had insurance before and then signed up uh you could not be turned down for pre-existing conditions and that again goes to the the idea of community rating because your your risk is already sort of your or is already kind of baked in if if you will if you are insured and, and it eliminates the the free riders sort of moral hazard problem that you get when uh if you could simply not uh sign up for insurance whatsoever and then, when you do get something, some dreadful disease, go and and get insured for it. That that's simply that's that's not a, it's an impossible way for insurance companies to run. No one would would buy insurance. Uh, but if you you buy early, they calculate in that that rate, um, the you know the, the community rating piece, and say say you are, um, uh, you know, if the likelihood of you getting cancer is is two percent within the next year or something based on uh, the community rating that's that's sort of the price that's factored in uh, as opposed to if you're uninsured uh, and then you 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 know develop uh, uh, cancer then and then you apply you' at that point your your likelihood is a hundred percent so I think that c- the continuation of coverage is, is something that's that's important that is so often left out uh, by Democrats I mean always if you you switch jobs or, or you move from one insured situation to another uh, you're not going to be denied for pre-existing conditions and and again that's been pretty standard for for several decades well, um, uh, you're right I mean if you're just if you're just some coming from uninsured to just buy on the uh, individual market to the extent one used to exist uh, uh, right you could you could be denied because in that case you would you would be uh, based on Individual experience rating rather than community rating. Yeah, well, and um, you know,
0: let's just be clear here on the whole pre-existing condition thing. In in technically, Republicans who say that 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 the prohibition is is in, still in place, they're they're right, you know. And so, in a way, you can say right. that Donald Trump now Donald Trump made three promises. I should say about the American Health Care Act. Number one, nobody will lose coverage. That is certainly false. Number two. They will take care of people with pre-existing conditions well, now, I, depending on what you I, mean you by know, take I, I'll care just, of. I'll
1: disagree with you on that because, you know, nobody, I, I think, you, again, it's. You, you don't think anyone they, will lose coverage. lose coverage. Billions taken day, away you know, they're from. They're no longer forced to acquire it.
0: No, 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 Jay. Millions, billions taken away from, from Medicare. And you don't think anyone's going to lose coverage That all. The states are going to make up for all those gaps. You really, you really completely want to throw out the CBO analysis. Now, again, we don't have one
1: for this latest one. But when you well, let's, let's 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 define our terms. When you say lose coverage, are you going to say your policy, your benefits might not be identical to what they were before, or you might have uh, higher copays, higher deductibles? No, I'm saying. I mean, now, is that what you mean by, by you, lose coverage? Well, you can or are say you, saying in, you, you are now sure. uninsured.
0: You can say in part. Now, I guess it depends on how you define it. You're right, but let's say your deductible all of a sudden, or your copay. Or sorry, your your premiums go up all of a sudden by, you know, 75% and you just while you technically can uh, you can buy coverage that still essentially means that you've lost your coverage, you've been priced out of the market. So, that I would count as losing coverage just because, you know, I technically could buy a Ferrari, but in reality I can't because, you know, we need to make house payments and things like that and so forth. So, I'm priced out of that market just like millions of people will be priced out of insurance markets.
1: Um, all right. You know what? We'll, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that. Uh, mean, based on, on the numbers. Okay. Um, okay. But, well, I, uh, I will, I will stick with uh, yeah, the CBO I mean, and- I look, I mean, pre- but, but keep in mind also, um, under the Obamacare system where you had, uh, premium increases going up, I mean, in the forties, 50% in a lot of places, uh, every year, I mean, uh, everyone <laughs> would have eventually been priced. No, that's again, but that's that's uh, you know, disputable. My, uh, you know, my my deductible plan at work went from, you know, more more than doubled uh in the last uh 3-4 years. But but, um, one, so, but one, so it's it's you know, there there are market factors, but but it's it's not a thing of uh uh you know, you're simply being thrown off of your insurance or the your insurance company can cancel you. Um and and it's it's addressing the problem because it's going to bring down premiums uh that that wouldn't have been brought down before because otherwise everybody would be in the same boat but it's, with the the continuing increasing premiums
0: but it's going to bring down premiums by pushing a lot of people out of the market that's how those premiums are coming down not because you're going to get innovation and wonderfulness and so forth no but no no, I, no
1: it's it they're they're coming they're coming down because they're they're not going to have as many strictures and regulations no, and the companies are going no. to be able to uh come up with with different plans different policies that they can offer uh, to different markets.
0: That's going to um, have a minuscule effect. The real reason that premiums are going to come down, and this is exactly what was in the initial CBO analysis, is that the main reason premiums are going to come down is because all the people who would have to pay a ridiculous amount for their health care insurance will be priced out of the market. That's what the CBO says, and that's what I believe is exactly what's going to happen.
1: So, well, but then, but then you you get into the Issue of you've got the the high risk pools which are going to be created the underfunded uh, high risk and, pools and 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 subsidized and and states had and many states had high risk pools uh, before Obamacare Obamacare limited limited the states' ability to do that uh, and and you know states were able to subsidize that there will be an additional eight billion dollar uh, federal subsidy for, not nearly enough for these high risk pools now I mean you, again you can make the argument eight billion isn't enough uh, uh, but but those ex- those those uh, states that had higher risk pools and have, have gotten waivers to do it. Alaska is one example. Um, if you looked at the premium increases that they had experienced the past couple years, and then they received a waiver, were able to do a high risk pool. The premium increase uh, in the last year was something like 7% down from, again, like the 40%. Um, so uh, that that's the way you I- expand coverage for, for those folks.
0: No, i I think no, I you know, I think there's something to what you say. i I believe that certainly under Obamacare, that Democrats focused, too much on coverage and not enough on cost, and I think that was a that was a big flaw, my main problem with Obamacare. But under the American Health Care Act, they're going the exact opposite way, and in a sense, it makes it makes sense to me because it's a reaction to that, you know. And so I think Republicans are focusing way too much on bringing premiums down and not enough on who's going to lose coverage under this. And though I I, I have some faith. Some hope that the Senate will reverse some of the, the what I see as the largest idiocies in the in the House bill, and I think what the, what emerges will still be bad for millions of Americans, but it will be much less bad than what the House bill is. Okay, I go with, with that.
1: That's sort of a ringing endorsement.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be awful, but less awful. So, all right. Well. <laughs> Let's move on to our other really big story this week, one that's now been, you know, largely overshadowed by that House healthcare vote. This is the bipartisan, and yes, you heard me right, bipartisan agreement in Congress on the spending bill that avoids a government shutdown and funds the government through the remainder of the fiscal year, which ends on September 30th. And now by bipartisan, I don't mean a few Democrats here and there voted for it. The final tallies on this 309 to 118 in the House, 79 to 18 in the Senate. And now, while this legislation did increase military spending, it was only by $19.9 billion, which is far less than President Trump wanted. It also increased funding for the National Institutes of Health by $2 billion, and that's an agency President Trump wanted to cut funding for. In addition, it doesn't provide funds to start work on that big, beautiful border wall the president loved to talk about on the campaign trail. So, Jay, what do you make of all these Republicans and Democrats coming together on the budget and not exactly giving the president what he wanted?
1: Well, uh, I, I think it's it's uh, what we sort of predicted. Um, in many cases, a lot of conservatives are are uh, a little uh, depressed here, feeling that Republicans got rolled here. Uh, um, there, there's not uh, any significant changes to uh, to spend uh doesn't really you know look at entitlements at all, all the, the big the big pieces um that Republicans uh, are concerned about and again Trump started off with sort of the very big very, very big bluster of uh here's all the things he's going to cut and and uh we, we we talked about that at length and we both said look that's not just not going to happen uh and and it didn't so in, in the one hand look I'm, I'm a little dismayed as a republican in that I wish uh, they had maybe held the line a little bit uh, stronger and gotten uh, more cuts and you know in the other thing when we talk about cuts in government spending often what we're talking about is just decreases in, in increases um, uh, you know the if, if you were look at how many times the government has actually cut or reduced in size over the last couple decades you'll, you'll find very few examples um, that that said, I think it made sense as a t- Tactical move uh, for both Republicans and Trump because uh, there is there's one one sort of cardinal rule that that we've learned over the last you know two and a half decades is that Republicans always lose in a government shutdown, um, no matter what. <laughs> you know, if the Republicans control the presidency and Congress is controlled by uh, Democrats and they shut it down, Republicans lose. If Republicans control the Congress, they lose. It just it's just it's sort of emerged as 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 you know, Republicans. There were there is no good government shutdown. Um, so from a tactical standpoint, I I think I think they made the right choice. Uh, you know, again, I would like to have seen a perhaps stronger bill, but you know, you're you're, at the same time, they're getting uh, a lot of these um, uh, entitlement changes uh, in the American Healthcare Act, which we which was talked about. Um, so maybe it's 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 something of a trade off. Uh, and uh, that, uh, uh, you know, maybe they're they're playing the longer game. So. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you know, this has definitely been seen as a huge win for the Democrats. I should point out that in the House, 103 of the 118 no votes came from Republicans. And in other words, 44 percent of House Republicans who voted on the bill voted against it. Again, this is a Republican House. And in the Senate, all 18 no right. votes came from Republicans. And, you know, I was thinking about this a lot this week, and it seemed to me that there were I came up with four basic reasons why so many Republicans opposed it. I'd like to get your thoughts on these. Number one is the sustainability argument, that idea that we're we're on a path of government spending that's simply unsustainable in the long term and this
1: didn't cut enough stuff. No, I agree. That's to me. That's okay. That's pretty much the the, the simplest and, and probably most accurate, right. uh, yeah, way to put it. Well, second is the liberty argument, and that's that
0: this whole idea of this large administrative state growing day by day, controlling more of people's lives, taxing them, mandating the their behavior, that's a problem just for that fundamental value of liberty, right?
1: Right. And right, and that that sort of precedes the the, I guess the the tactical we want to cut stuff. Why? Because it, it encroaches on Liberty and, uh, you, if- if you cut spending, you cut taxes, you you sort of starve the beast, as right, it were. Right,
0: exactly, yeah. And third is what I call the dependence argument, is that, no, we really do care about poor people, but we just don't want them to become dependent on government benefits. It reminds me of this week Ben Carson toured some public housing facility. He's our uh, secretary of, of housing and urban development there. And uh, he said, you know, I'm worried that uh, we're going to make these places too nice and people won't want to leave. And I thought, well, I <laughs> don't think that's going to be a problem. But anyway, that's the dependence argument. And, you know, a lot of conservatives make that.
1: Yeah, yeah, as as, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan once said, that we ought to measure our compassion not by people, uh, how many people are on the welfare rolls, but on how many people no longer need it. So, yeah, I I agree with you there. And then finally
0: is there uh, the efficiency argument, that idea that if government's doing stuff, that means markets aren't doing it, and the best thing for government to do is to pull back and let governments work their magic with minimal government interference. So, to me... That kind
1: of Well, I'd I'd add maybe a little bit of a gloss to that in that uh, efficiency to the extent government needs to be involved. uh, Often it can be accomplished better and more efficiently uh, and and with more safeguards to to liberty at the state level. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, and and I I wanted to bring these things up because I think it's important to point out that most Republicans don't hate poor people. Uh, You know, you don't hate poor people, Jay. I know that. I like them. I like them quite a bit. And the thing is, is what I'm saying is that I certainly share some concerns about the sustainability argument in particular. Uh, And I think all of these, to an extent, are – valid concerns, though as a liberal, I don't see them to be nearly as valid or nearly as large of concerns as taking care of people and providing a safety net so people can go out and do things and start businesses and innovate and and, and live fulfilling lives and so forth. And I see these things as a little more important. But my point is, is when I I see stories, especially from some of my friends on the left about this, it, you know, kind of, cast republicans as these sort of evil villains and and i just for the most part there. sure there are some people like that but for the most part i just don't see that as the case i just see as kind of a fundamental difference about weighing these you know these concerns that i think we should all to a certain
1: extent have you know so sure no and and i yeah well i appreciate that you don't think i'm out there just you know kicking poor people in the street and so forth um but but it does come down to the the question of, of motivation, and often the other side just not understanding one another. Yeah, uh, you know, I saw you saw this in the ACA also that, you know, the idea that Republicans are passing these these changes, uh, you know, because they want people to die. Uh, sure. And I, I mean, again, that's that's not terribly good politics, uh, no matter where you come from philosophically. Um, but the the idea that uh, you know if, if and I'll also it up up this way, is that Republicans very much believe that people can make their own individual choices and ought to make their own individual choices, and if they have more money in their own pocket to make their own individual choices, uh, that's sort of a better world than sending that money to Washington to have someone else make those choices, who might not make them uh, as wisely, uh, as efficiently, um, uh, or or you know just come back to the fundamental point of hey, it's 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 their money. So so yeah, and I I I appreciate that you know again. And some on the left can understand that that, that there's there's a, a valid counter argument, and that the idea that uh, uh, private private money uh, is is somehow bad uh, is 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 sort of sort of nonsensical.
0: So. No, yeah, and I think it's just a, you know a question of waiting and certainly reasonable people can weigh these things in different ways, and and. But again, for me, just saying that, well, I, I believe that most Republicans have very good intentions doesn't mean that I'm not concerned about what I feel will be disastrous results from these good-intentioned right.
1: efforts. The ACA you know? will still be horrible.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, and I think, you know, it's, you know, when we talk about debt, and, and that's, that's one thing that comes up a lot among a lot of people on the right, and it, it does seem like, for instance, federal spending is growing and the debt is growing, but if you take a look at- At public debt as a percentage of gross domestic product, which is really the best way to to measure it, essentially, because debt is only meaningful in the sense of your ability to repay. It really is not nearly as scary as some of those charts that you see, and it's not growing at the sort of rate that a lot of people paint it as. Same thing with federal spending. I mean... Here's, how, here's one way a lot of people look at it and say, well, 20 years ago, the federal government spent around $1.5 trillion. This year, it's more than double that, almost $4 trillion. But as a percentage of GDP, right. federal spending has actually declined through much of the Obama presidency. And it's really right now at a level that's roughly equivalent to where it's been for the last 40 years. So some of these arguments are based on kind of cherry picking and, and sort of using – manipulating statistics, basically, in in a way to kind of prove an ideological point. And I should also point out that, you know, you can kind of blame, in a way, if you're concerned about federal spending, you can kind of blame, or deficits, you can blame Ronald Reagan, the patron saint of the right, about whom no bad word may be uttered, right? Because he issued in this era of big tax cuts with no cuts in spending. In fact, increases in spending. And when you take a look at all these debt charts, they start to just go way up starting in right around 1980. And there has a lot to do with the Republicans kind of abandoning, well, not not abandoning their idea of cutting taxes, certainly, but abandoning their idea of, of kind of having offsetting spending cuts with tax cuts,
1: which has a lot of conservatives Well, you, I mean, let's also – Let's also uh, remember, though, that that when Reagan took office, uh, he faced a a Democratic House, uh, and then for for part of his presidency, a Democratic House and Democratic Senate, uh, which which controls the the spending. So, on the one hand, I mean, tax cuts are always popular; Uh, spending cuts rarely are. Um, uh, But you know, I, I think the other the other piece to look at, though, if you if you compare that that Reagan era chart of GDP versus versus debt, is also the, the increasing interest uh, on the debt that we're paying now we've been pretty fortunate uh, uh, to the extent we did a lot of borrowing early in the, the Obama administration uh, we had a, a, a trillion dollar uh, uh, debt spending um, interest rates were were relatively low um, so it I suppose it could have been worse but if you look at the the gra- gradual piece of the federal pie that is always paying interest uh, that's the problem and 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 you know, we conservatives have been concerned for years that there's going to be a, a debt bomb essentially uh, waiting down the road uh, that's going to happen. And is and starting to happen with with uh, baby boomer retirements where they're qualifying for more and more uh, federal programs um, sure. uh, and, and, and not having that same level of economic um, activity to, to support that. And that's that's just a like demographic thing um, that you have more people then taking money out of the system than we're we're putting into it. You no, know, I think it's, that's a really important but, point. And the, and the way, and I'll say the way, the way out of it, uh, and the way out that that uh, Reagan proposed and most conservatives propose is is growth. Uh, it's it's increasing that GDP piece of it, uh, uh, so that that ratio narrows and eventually the the, the debt uh, is more manageable too.
0: Yeah, I think no one no one is really well. There are some people who are against growth. That's a whole other episode perhaps, but, but you know, and I think the other thing you bring up is where the money goes, right? And about two thirds of the entire, of all federal spending goes to what's called mandatory spending. And that's spending that's authorized by previous legislation, which means that if you want to change that, Congress has to pass a new law and the, and the president has to sign it. And that's really tough to do. And the lion's share of that are those entitlement programs you mentioned, like Social Security and Medicare and other health programs. Those are really tough to change. especially.
1: Yeah, so I, 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 Go ahead. Yeah, I saw some, one commentator note, uh, and I, I forget who, uh, but that in, in many ways we are a, a – a- giant insurance company with an army.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up in a minute here, but you know, cause one, the one third of discretionary spending, that means that needs to be reauthorized with every budget. Well, military spending is 53% of that. And that, that dwarfs everything else. In fact, the United States military spending is right around 40% or so of the entire world's military spending. I mean, being the superpower to the extent we are militarily is hugely expensive. And there were some people who thought that, well, maybe President Trump, based on some of his campaign rhetoric, would would be interested in pulling back on some of that, but clearly that's not the case. He asked for an awful, an awfully big increase in the military, and so the thing is, if you want to, if you want to take care, of if you want to cut some of these things, these are these are difficult things to cut. And no one really wants to vote for yeah. a cut in military spending. No one wants to vote for social security and Medicare spending because old people vote like crazy, you know. And so these are tough things to do. And I see a, you know, a real lack of nerve. But the thing is, you know, you point out what the. Interest payments someone is going to pay for this and it's going to be your kids jay it's going to be people in the future because these bills will come due
1: yeah uh you know and uh, we referenced the um oh my gosh and i'm I'm blanking on the uh uh the the two members of the commission uh that uh, president obama put together uh that came out with with recommendations and uh right um, I'm horribly, I'm horribly embarrassed. Uh, give me a second.
0: No, I'm blanking on him too, so that's <laughs> fine. But that commission that President Obama put together, yes, go ahead.
1: Uh, hold on. Hold on. on, 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 on. Um, uh, but, but the idea, they they were unable to uh, uh, come up with uh, a, a definite proposal for debt reduction. Uh, but what they did come up with was uh, sort of a framework uh, wherein, uh, tax cuts, uh, spending increases, spending cuts were all, all scored. Um, and you know, there was, there was sort of a give and take and the idea would be, um, you know, listen, if, if, if Congress wants to move forward, here are the, here are the trade-offs that, that you'll have to make, uh, you know, you want to have this much in tax cuts. Um, you'll, you can have, um, uh, you know, this much, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, uh, Simpson, the Simpson Bowles commission. There you go. Okay. How can I forget? How can I forget uh, Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming and, and uh former uh, uh, chief of staff, Erskine Bowles. Um, I believe he was a chief of staff. He was a lot of th- things. Um, but you know, the, the, that report and that's um, uh way of thinking, I mean, really hasn't gone anywhere again. They, they began meeting uh, early in Obama's uh, first term and, put out the report I want to say in uh, 2014 maybe 2012 uh, and uh, it's still out there um, but if for those who are interested I mean I, I look look up uh, Simpson uh and it's it's really a fascinating view of, of, of where our, our country's finances are uh, and how you get there now I, I disagree with with to some extent that tax cuts are, are always a, a deficit or always a debit uh, because there is some uh, increase in, in activity the tax cuts it's breeds that that you know ends up bringing more money in the coffers. Um uh but uh I that's that's if, if you want to understand government finance, uh that's a good place to look. Yeah.
0: You know, I I'll disagree with you. Well, I won't disagree with you entirely on that last point. <laughs> Certainly. You don't
1: like Simpson Bowls, come on. No, man. no,
0: no. On the <laughs> on the idea that tax lists can pay for themselves. Um I think that's oh. that's that's fairly discredited. Though I will say that it is fair to take into account that certain tax cuts, in certain instances, do create economic growth. That that uh, is is a you know important to take into account when you're estimating costs and benefits. So, all right, um, you know, Jay, we're we're introducing a new feature to the show this week. Uh, it's called uh, what, what we're reading. Uh, what we're reading. Where we'll talk about some in-depth, long-read article, book, podcast episode, documentary, whatever that we've come across during the week. So. I guess we could call it what we're reading, listening to, or watching, but you know, that doesn't really sound so good. So let's just stick with what we're reading. Um, And the reason we're planning to make this a regular feature on the show is that it's so easy to get completely caught up in short news stories and that kind of near instant analysis of what's happening right now. But if that's all the media we consume, we're left with this shallow, superficial view of the world that I think impoverishes our understanding of it. And in the end makes us poorer citizens and less capable of, you know, of competent self-government. Um, so our hope, that, yeah. yeah, I mean, our hope is that you'll check out some of our recommendations and we'll be putting links to them on our website and that, you know, you'll find them useful in deepening your understanding of politics and society, but we're doing this for ourselves as well. So that we end up more consistently seeking out this sort of in-depth and thoughtful analysis that, we hope will make us better at our jobs as politics podcasters. So with that, uh, if you don't mind, Jay, I'll inaugurate it with my uh, top read of the week. All right. What are you reading? Well, it's an article by Andrew Sullivan called Reactionaries Must Be Taken Seriously in the latest issue of New York Magazine. Now, Sullivan's not exactly a conservative, not really a liberal, but He's been one of my favorite political writers for a long time, and in this article, he discusses the differences between conservatives and reactionaries, and he basically argues that while both have a certain respect or really even reverence for the past, conservatives are skeptical of big radical changes, whereas reactionaries are all about Big radical changes. And he argues that, you know, most of what we see in the so called conservative movement these days are really kind of reactionaries more than conservatives. Um, and then he goes on to discuss some of the leading reactionary academics, bloggers, other thought leaders, these folks who came out and supported Donald Trump. And he explains where they think the country went wrong and why Trump, for all of his flaws, might be the last best hope of getting the United States back on the right track. And I really found this to be the most reasonable and, and fair-minded account of what some have termed the alt-right that I've seen so far, and I've read a lot on this. And so I highly recommend it, especially to my friends on the left. And if you do read it, I'd love to hear what you think about it.
1: So there we go. Okay, that's a good one. All right. So well, my 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 pick uh was a uh, op-ed piece uh in the wall street journal from april 21st by uh, nebraska senator ben sass uh entitled the challenge of our disruptive era uh, and and it's interesting in that um it's unusual that you see a a sitting a political figure sort of take big picture uh, arguments and talk about uh where we stand in the bigger scope of history it's 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 uh all 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 too typical that they say, you know, whatever legislation, you know, X house bill, whatever, uh, is vital to the future of mankind. And, and, you know, if it isn't passed or if this is passed, uh, you know, we're on the brink of catastrophe. And, and he sort of starts by saying, look, this this is, uh, this is in very ways silly. And historians are right to point out that, uh, often the thing the media focuses on as, as this is tremendous, this is huge, uh, life-changing really isn't when you look at it in the, the grand scope of history. Uh, but then he proceeds to, to take a look at the grand scope of history and say, we are, in fact, living in a, a time when we're moving from a fundamentally different economy or from a fundamentally, you know, certain said norms in an economy into, into, a, into a new one. Now, that's not entirely a new idea, uh, but if, if you really start to think about the term. Tra- Transitions from you know a hunter-gatherer economy uh, to an agricultural one, from an agricultural one to an industrial one, uh, and then industrial to a, a a post-industrial, which is sort of where we are on on the brink. Um, it it's it's really it is a little daunting um, that that we are we may be at one of these sort of pivots in, in in human history and and how it affects not just uh, the economy of of what kind of work people do. Uh, but but their expectations, uh, how they live their lives, how they how they uh, govern themselves, how they talk talk to one another. Um, so I, I'd I'd recommend that. Again, it 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 hits on a lot of other things going on. Uh, sort of points to uh, maybe some some you know pieces of the of the Trump phenomenon. Uh, uh, but um, I I found it uh, really again an interesting read from from unusual from a, a sitting politician. Who who aren't typically public and elected. The last one I can think of is like a Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who who looked. At these kind of big picture things. So
0: right now we'll also post. I read that article as well, and I thought it was I thought it was really good. I agree with you entirely. Worth worth checking out. We'll post a link to, to that as well. Though I should point out that the Wall Street Journal, because you know they they hate the little people. They they make you pay for most of this stuff. So this may be behind their paywall. But if you have the opportunity, or have a subscription, or know someone who does, it certainly is worth checking out. Because that, as Jay pointed out, that is a, a really good article. A lot of good stuff in there. All right. That's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. You know, we really appreciate our great listeners who have generously supported the show through their donations. And if you'd like to join them, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight or you're already a financial supporter, please consider hitting that share icon on your podcast app to pass this episode along to your friends and followers and also leaving ratings and reviews of the show on Don't your pass app. Nothing. But no, that that's right. Exactly. Totally free. And so that really helps spread the word, that helps bring in new listeners, that leads to the donations and advertisers that make us possible for us to keep on bringing you the show. And finally, thanks to today's sponsor, proflowers.com, where you can get the 100 Blooms for Mom bouquet and a free glass face starting at $19.99 plus shipping and handling by going to proflowers.com, clicking on the microphone in the top right corner and using our code TPG. That's proflowers.com and code TPG when you click on the mic. We'll be back with a new show next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.